choir. That was outstanding. And as a preacher, you don't know how much that blesses and warms my heart and encourages me because I'm thinking before there's just something that I think is tremendous to have one, an elder, Rick, pray for the preached word that we would tear back the curtain and be able to see the beauty and the glory of Christ and to lift him up and then have the choir sing Jesus' name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, because that's the goal of what we're doing. As I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, our goal is that we would see the beauty of Jesus, that we would fall in love with him, that the depths of his radiance and majesty and goodness and beauty, holiness and love would just overwhelm our souls. May we see Jesus this morning by the power of his spirit, in and through the heralding of the good news of Christ. We, uh, for this week and next, we have just two more weeks looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We started this passage last week, and let me remind you, as we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, I'm going to read verses 7 to 11. I preached on that last week. If you weren't here, that's the section on prayer. And I asked, why did Jesus include in this part of it, why did he put in this section uh, prayer in the section of relationships and treating people and what we know as the golden rule? And that's because none of us can do that on our own. We're talking about how do we treat people? If you think you know how to love, you failed the first step. Because the first step is to go, I don't have a clue how to love, and what do we do? We call out, we cry out to God. So as you hear, and I'm going to be expositing for us these topics of judgment and topics of taking the speck. Real, judgment doesn't mean we're not involved in each other's lives, that we don't confront, that we don't hold accountable. But there's a right and a wrong way to do it. And we need to know our aims and our intentions and the heart that's behind it. There is a lot Jesus is putting on us. And to re- realize and recognize you can't do that without a life of dependent spirituality abiding in him, walking with him. And prayer is the way to do that. I don't know about you, but I walk away almost every conversation. I'm like, I need to ask. I need to seek. I need to know. It's like pursue, pursue, pursue. So that's how prayer fits in with the whole of what we're talking about. Now let's turn to God's word. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 begins where it's very familiar, if not to the church, definitely to the world, because what do they say? Judge not. They don't always say the second part that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
This is the word of God. Let's take a look for a quick moment how, let's put it in some context. How does Jesus, or this passage in chapter 7 of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount fit within the context of the overall sermon of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7? How does it fit, in other words, with what has gone before, with what has preceded it? Let's remember that Jesus is talking about life in his kingdom under his kingly rule. And let's remember what his kingdom is all about. That Jesus' kingdom mission really is, in the words of one writer, local church mission. For the church is God's people living under God's kingly rule. So to build the kingdom is to build the local church. In fact, one of my favorite writers, a man by the name of Graham Goldsworthy, a theologian from Australia, I love his definition of the kingdom of God. He says, God's kingdom is God's people living in God's place under God's rule. So in other words, listen to that. God's kingdom is God's people living in God's place under God's rule. So thus, when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about building up the church. For the church is that sign and that foretaste, that representative, that agent of the rule and reign of God. And think about what Jesus has said. We want to put this passage in the context of the whole. Jesus has said that his kingdom people will have a righteousness that far exceeds that of the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. He's spoken to them about the dangers of hypocrisy, and he's spoken to them about the priority of seeking first his rule and his reign, that you put seeking first his kingdom above your earthly pleasures, above your earthly sustenance. In that same passage, he's talking about food, shelter, clothing. He says, you seek the kingdom of God, I'll worry about all this other stuff. And now, as theologian D.A. Carson rightly points out, he says, whenever you have high standards such as that, and make no mistake, Jesus is putting very high standards describing life in his kingdom. He says there are other dangers as well, specifically the dangers of self-righteousness, and judgmentalism. Remember that Jesus is forming a family. He is building a family of what it means to be truly human. He's forming a kingdom community, a kingdom community that in a will act like a mirror, a mirror reflecting back to the world the goodness, the love, the light of God himself. So here he's teaching us specifically what life in the kingdom looks like, what it means in terms of how we treat other people. How very specifically we are to, and there is a place, taking specks out of the eyes, knowing the, knowing the difference, whose dogs and whose pigs. That's interesting language, isn't it? We'll get to that. But knowing how to enter into and do life together, how to treat other people. He's building a family, forming a community for himself, we want to ask the question, what does Jesus teach us here about how to treat people? What does Jesus teach us about truly loving others well? For remember, and this to me is so important because we hear the word love, and I think too often we have a worldly definition. We think of it as an emotion or a I'm sincere in my love. And we might go, well, that's great. You sincerely love me poorly. For love is not an adjective. Love is a verb. It's an action word. And like I, I would like to say, so I like to play golf, and I would like to say I play golf well, 
or the truth would be, I play golf very mediocre. Okay, that's the truth. Love is a skill. It's a skill by the strength and the power and the teaching of the Holy Spirit applying the word to our lives. We need to learn to apply better. And Jesus is teaching us how to love better, how to actually grow in the skill of loving. And to do so, he does so by teaching us three things. He says there's a prohibition. There's something very simply you're to knock off and stop doing. There is an explanation behind the prohibition, why you're to stop doing that. And finally, he gives you a principle, a principle to sum all of it up. So a prohibition, an explanation, and a principle. Sounds simple enough? Let's dive in. The prohibition is simple. And everybody thinks they get it. I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure I get it yet. Okay? But what does it say? Judge not that you be not judged. Now, we all know what judging means, right? We sure say it often enough, and I bet you if you talk to anybody in the world, you hear it quite often, don't you? What is the church? The church is just filled with what? Hypocrites and judgmental people. Yes. <laughs> we still means we should define it correctly, though, don't you think? So let's look at what it means, and let's look at what it does not mean. Let's start by stating what it does not mean. It certainly does not mean that we are forbidden of judging of all kinds. Look at the text right before us. In this very passage, in just a few verses, Jesus is going to speak of some people as dogs and pigs. Now, we're going to get to that. And later, he's going to warn of false prophets and false teachers. Certainly, these instructions, to follow these instructions Jesus is giving, presupposes and mandates a certain kind or a certain form of judging. So all blanket judging is certainly not off limits. You have to make distinctions, and you have to be discerning. So what does it mean? And again, I'm going to step back, and let's put it in context and recognize who Jesus is coming against. And here he is specifically coming against the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, who, Paul teaches us this in Romans, they had a zealousness, they had a zeal not based on, on knowledge. They were going after the wrong thing. And I think one of the things at the heart of that they were going after was creating a moral culture, a moral climate in which everybody looks at everybody else to see if they're keeping their standards up. They want to see if everyone around them is measuring up to their standards. So you recall, for example, Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees happened to take notice that some of Jesus' disciples, they had a Labor Day picnic. And they came to the Labor Day picnic without washing their hands. That's bad news in the Pharisee climate. That's bad news in the Pharisee world. You don't come. So what did they do? They went to Jesus and they said, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? In other words, they were very interested in creating a climate where it was all about their turf, the traditions, a climate where their chief concern was to see that everyone lived up to their standards. Now, I know you're sitting there going, bad Pharisees. I'm so glad we never do that. Ain't it good? We, Spruce Creek is a gospel church. We would never do that. Well, time out. Have you ever said or heard things like, 
That's the way we do it around here. Huh. Moral climate. Or, and I've had this, thankfully not at Spruce Creek, but I've had this said to me in my ministry career before, it's okay to reach out, to have people from the community come in, but they better learn to do church our way. Really? That's interesting. Now, it depends. Obviously, if we're really applying God's word, that's one thing. But knowing the distinction between that and the tradition, notice what he is saying. So what exactly does this mean? What exactly is Jesus saying, knock it off, don't do it? Here it is. He's saying, stop playing God. Do not judge means quit usurping the place of God. For think, judge is a legal term, isn't it? Just like the word, that's where we get the word justification from. And judge comes from the legal courtroom, the law court scene. It's a very forensic word. Think of a court. What does the judge do? The judge meets out the consequences based on the evidence. What do we not do? We don't meet out the consequences. That's not our prerogative. We're going to see, and when Jesus gives the explanation, part of the explanation is so that we can truly be effective doing the job we're called to do, job of teaching, job of warning, job of entering in, but not the job of deciding what people deserve. We're not God. So yes, we warn. Yes, we, Jesus puts it in the language of we take specks out of the eye. But we don't determine who's a believer and who's not. That alone is the prerogative of God. God and God alone is the judge. I've got both bad news and good news for you. You and I don't meet the job description. We could turn in our resume to God all we want. We don't qualify. God alone is God. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 14, he put it this way. He says, and he's applying, this is why I love to read the letters of Paul in concert with the Gospels. Because I think they go together, and what Paul is doing, he's applying to a local church context, he's applying to a local congregation, the words, the message, the teaching, the doctrine, the ministry of Jesus. So he says to the church at Rome, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. What are we to stop? What are we to knock off? What is there to be no place of in the community of God's kingdom people? Assuming the place of God. Jesus is not saying that we never discern or we never confront or we never make distinctions. But in other words, there's a right way and a wrong way of doing this, to go about this. Think about this. What are ways we do this? How do we go about this? Well, usually it's in our speech. I mean, I can't help but think Jesus is giving us wisdom here, literature here, and he's reflecting on some of the Proverbs. And I have to admit, as one who likes to speak, this proverb scares me. Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Should I pray now? (laughs) 
do we take that to heart when we assume we're not judging? Can you see why Jesus put in there about our prayer life, by the way, when the wisdom literature right out of the word of God, right out of the Proverbs says, whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Again, think about how we do this. Let me just give you, I alluded to this example before, but one way I think we do it is when we assume the knowledge and the right to determine, to decide who's a believer and who's not a believer. Now, again, think about it. We're talking about our speech, speech which is a reflection of what is in our hearts. If we're truly concerned about the other person, doesn't mean we don't issue true gentle warnings, doesn't mean we don't enter into their lives, doesn't mean we don't confront, doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. We tell people, for example, there's a danger to not being repentant. That's not playing God or judge, judging. We tell people what the scriptures say. We tell people it is possible to think you're a believer and not be one. And we communicate. It means we need, sometimes you even need to rehearse what you're going to say before you have the conversation with people. One of the things I think in application we do wrong is we shoot off the hip. We just speak. We don't think before we speak. We don't practice before we speak. We don't rehearse before we speak. See, judgment is telling someone, for example, they're not a believer. I want you to think about that for a second. How do you know that? Especially in light of our theology. Our theology says that God and God alone elects. It's one of the distinctives, one of the riches of our theology. Now, this is not a whole sermon on predestination, so relax. But it is an application coming out of one of the implications. How in the world do you know who God has elected and who God hasn't elected? How do you know who is... So, yes, in your conversation, say, well, the scriptures do talk. It's possible that our hearts can be deceived. I, my heart could be deceived. That's part of the next point. Go lead first with the log then go to the speck. And leading with the log might even be as you issue the warning, issuing your own failures and sharing your own log with that person. So judging is certainly not about making distinctions, making warnings, confronting. It's all about putting yourself in the place of God. And I've got a simple application. Quit it, as that's out. Now, if you're not convinced yet, Jesus goes further. Why should you quit it? Why should you stop? And he basically, verses 2 to 6, basically says because judging renders you ineffective. Judging renders you ineffective in the church and in the world. We want to be intentional and strategic in our gospel ministry, living out of the gospel in our church community and in the world. And judging renders us ineffective. First of all, to one another. Verse, verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the first thing is, if you want to play God by judging that judgment will bounce back on you. The measuring rod, the measuring stick you're using with others, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it has to be done. This is the tradition. 
This is the way. You can come on in, but you better do it our way. All of it, you want to create that kind of climate. Jesus is saying, the very turf you use on others, that turf is going to be used on you. Do you want to be judged with the judgment you are judging others on? But then he also says, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, now listen carefully, obviously Jesus wants parts of our intention. We need each other. He wants us removing specks from one another. Let me be brutally honest with you. You called a flawed man to be your pastor. I need you. I need you to be taking specks out of my eyes. I have blind spots in my life. I have blind spots in my character. And I need you to help me see them. I need you to help. But if you're coming towards me and you have a two-by-four in your eye, let me tell you, you're going to miss my blind spot. I'm going to go, I need you. There you go. Excuse me. I'm over here. You've totally, you've been completely ineffective. You might mean, well, this is why I said love is not an emotion. You may sincere, you may be walking by me and go, Jeff, I really love you and I see that and I'm going, I'm over here. You've completely missed you and you know why? You've got a blind spot that's like a two by four. Jesus calls it a plank. Do you see the logic in what he's saying? Lead first with your log. Lead first with the fact of, so if you're confronting, if you're holding somebody accountable of going, Tim Keller used to put it this way, when you hold people accountable saying, you're being stupid in this area, but you know what? I have 50,000 other areas where I'm being stupid in. So I'm stupid, you're stupid, we're two stupid people, let's help each other. And you know what happens when you do that? You're creating a culture of openness. You're creating a culture where there's a, and you're being effective. Again, let's take some of the letters that were written to churches and apply it. The letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 says, encourage or exhort one another daily as long as it is called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in other words, you know what that verse is saying? That is saying that each one of us we're subject to a hardening, an entropy, if you would. We're, we're subject to this. The deceitfulness of sin will calcify our hearts. And God has given us a gift, one another, to exhort and to encourage. But if we do so, failing to see each other's log, here's what the community will look like. The community will look like a whole bunch of people hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we will not be a mirror reflecting back the goodness and the beauty and the wonder of the love and the light of God shown in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, how do, in the world do we begin? You, you kind of hear the explanation that Jesus is giving. He wants, us to be for, he wants us to be effective. How do we do it? We have to understand grace. We have to understand the gospel and apply the gospel in our lives. See, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say? Matthew 6, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. 
Now, he's not saying that our forgiveness of others becomes the merit or the ground of God forgiving us. That'd be a complete denial of the gospel. But what he is saying is it's a manifestation. It's an attestation of you would, an evidence that you have been forgiven and that you understand the enormity of God's forgiving you. In other words, the judgmental person, the person who's truly playing God by not being forgiving, testifies to his own arrogance and lack of understanding of the grace he has been shown. Let me give you one other biblical illustration. Think of the parable of the unmerciful servant and the big-hearted king that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, that's what a judge does. A judge settles accounts. Within the body of Christ, we do life together. We enter. We're not settling accounts. When we hold accountable, you're not settling accounts. You're moving into people's lives. We're moving specs so that you, one sinner, may help another sinner return to the source of grace. But God, the judge, settles accounts. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one servant was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And obviously, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And it says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I want you to think about something. How could that master forgive the debt unless he absorbed the cost of it? That 10,000 talents was still owed. Did the master get the 10,000 talents from somewhere else? No, he had to absorb the cost himself. God cancels our debt by absorbing the cost himself through Jesus Christ on the cross. But then the text tells us, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a simple amount of money, a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now look at this. Tim Keller puts it very well. He says, think about this. He says, look at this servant, the servant who has been shown such grace, yet doesn't understand the grace that has been shown him. Compare him to the king. It is incredibly incongruous for the servant to act like a king. And that's the definition of judging. The judging, judging is you, the servant, putting yourself in the place of the king. And what is the definition of the gospel? It is God, the king, putting himself in the place of the servant. This, when we judge, we show we're like the servant, choking the life out of the man. Pay me what you owe me. Come and do that. Get down on your knees, and you don't forgive him. Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ here is showing us like in a mirror what we're all like when we stay angry at people, when we judge out of anger. We are all like a servant acting like a king. And he says, what's the solution? It's to truly understand and apply the gospel of God's grace. We have to behold. What does living by faith mean? It means beholding by faith the king who became a servant. 
Dr. Keller writes, the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, looked down at us, not simply knowing that we might cost him his glory and power, but knowing that we would definitely cost him his glory and power. And he came to earth and he died on the cross. And the last words he said before he died are recorded for us in John's gospel. And in Greek, it's the word tetelestai, which in English is translated, it is finished. Literally means it is paid. And he says, you have to then put in day-to-day community life. This is what this passage in Matthew is about. How do we treat other people? Dr. Keller says you have to learn daily to put your little story into the big story, into Jesus' story, which is he did not make you pay a single bit. There is a debt. The debt has to be paid. He paid for it. He didn't make you pay for it. Dr. Keller says, you know, deep in your heart, when there's been a wrong, there's a debt and someone has to pay it. And Jesus Christ didn't take a penny from us. He paid it all. And if you put that into your story, you will never be able to pay down someone's debt to you when they wrong you unless you see Jesus paying the infinite debt of what you did to him. You will never be able to pay the little debts off that other people have done to you unless you see the infinite debt. You have to put it into that story. And see, look what happens when we do that. All of a sudden, we can become effective within living out the gospel in our community because we're taking planks out of our eyes continually so we can take specks out of each other's eyes as the needs come. And we can be effective sharing the gospel with the world. Because look at verse 6. Verse 6 talks about dogs and pigs. Kind of strange, isn't it? How does that fit in? Well, dogs in the first century was an abusive term used in the first century to speak of Gentiles. And, of course, it would only be Gentiles who would keep pigs since Jews did not eat pork. And in the first century, that early mission, in the immediate context of the gospel, it was to Jews only. When Jesus, in Matthew 10, sent out his disciples, he instructed his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. But then later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and obviously today, in the age we live in today, the gospel is to go out into all the world. And if we have a log in our own eye, and we're not addressing the log, we will not only be ineffective in our ministry amongst one another, we will not know who we should be sharing the gospel with. We will not be effective in our treasuring and sharing the sacred, holy message of the kingdom of God. We'll be sharing it only where it can be what? Trampled down by people and they'll even attack us. If we are so busy being a church that's against everything, we major in condemnation. We will condemn others, showing what we're against, telling others how they don't measure up. That strategy will backfire on us, will be ineffective both within our own community and ineffective in the world. Lastly, what principle do we live out as we go with this message of the gospel to one another and to the world? I'll be very brief here because Jesus summed up the principle in verse 12 when he said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And when he said, for this is the law and the prophets, he's closing up a section he began way back in chapter 5, verse 17 
where he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. And the law and the prophets was his holistic way of saying the entire word of God. So here is Jesus saying, love, defined as doing to others what you would want them to do to you. In other words, putting yourself into the shoes of others and say, how would I like to be treated? And that's the way you enter into people's lives. And that's the way you share them. That's the right way to confront and to share the message and to go with the message. In other words, as followers of Jesus, as those who've been touched and transformed and filled with the love of Christ, we go out loving and trusting and obeying what God is really like. And we're that mirror reflecting God's love and God's light and God's goodness to the world. And what does it do? It fulfills the very word of God. Which Jesus says he came not to abolish one little bit, but to fulfill. Our love for one another is the very fulfillment of the word of God. That's why Jesus said in John's gospel, by this all men will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. God is about forming a family who will be conformed to his very likeness and personality, which is love. Let's meditate on this as we go to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. We ask now, Father, that you would help us to taste and see your goodness that you would show us your love, and that as we come and take these elements and proclaim, Jesus, your death, that we would receive your mercy, that we would be strengthened, and that we would be renewed in your new covenant. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.